0: This episode of Brand Growth Heroes is supported by Strong Roots. Strong Roots believes food can be better for you and for the planet. Their end goal? To fix the freezer aisle for good. I love Strong Roots for so many reasons, but particularly because their exciting product innovation and inspired branding has revolutionised freezer aisles across the globe in only six years. So this season, with Strong Roots support, Brand Growth Heroes will continue to champion the founders of insurgent brands on their own scale-up journey. Thanks again to Strong Roots, Simple, real food. Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. VerlInvest is the investment company behind brands like Tony's Chocolonely, Only, Oatly, Mooty and is helping to build some of the world's largest consumer brands. In this episode, I speak to Ben Black, Director of VerlInvest's UK business, and I get some top advice for founders looking for funding. You'll learn the three new things that investors are looking for in today's economic climate, including a brand's potential to go mainstream, a clear path to profitability and the resilience of their supply chains. Listen on to learn more. Ben Black from Verlinvest, Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. Thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to us today.
1: Hi, Fiona. Thanks so much for hosting me.
0: Is it hot in London today?
1: It is, and it's glorious. So everyone's out on the streets and, and enjoying it, and uh, as are we.
0: You look like you're in an attic office and I'm in an incredibly messy studio. So look, let's get straight to it. Tell us about Verl invest, what you guys do, how you started and the kinds of companies that you guys invest in.
1: Sure, uh, absolutely. Uh, look, will Invest to some extent is quite a unique entity. Uh, we are a long-standing evergreen investor in disruptive FMCG brands. Uh, and what that means is we were established about 25 years ago, uh, funded by the Belgian families who have a controlling stake in AB InBev with a view to backing the next generation of disruptive consumer brands with global potential. So more practically, that means today we manage uh, about 2 billion euros of uh, of capital that is in either majority positions or minority positions, but always backing entrepreneurs who are uh, delivering category-defining brands and looking for assistance in building them internationally. So w- we talk a lot about consumer revolutions. How do we drive consumer revolutions um, typically that make the, uh, the, the, the consumer space of the future better than it is today. And that, that's typically, Fiona, that's typically along three, three lines. That's driving more healthy solutions. That's driving more ethical solutions. And that's driving more sustainable solutions.
0: So what kind of brands do you invest in that we'd recognise? And at what stage do you guys get involved at?
1: So, few brands in the portfolio that you, you've had on, uh, on on brand growth areas before. Actually, uh, Oatly, we're still uh, the largest shareholder in Oatly since uh, since IPO, and we first invested in twenty sixteen. Uh, we have Tony's Chocolate Only in the portfolio, which is another fantastic success story. One of my very most favourite brands in the whole world. Excellent. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about what Tony's is doing because it's very important and aligned to what Verlinvest uh, see the future as. We have uh, Vitacoco, which we've, which we've built up from a, a $1 million brand to a, a business that's now IPO'd in the US. We have Mutti, which is an Italian tomato products brand. And uh, we have a toilet paper brand, actually, which we should also talk about. An Australian brand called Who Gives a Crap, which is a direct-to-consumer brand doing a sustainable household paper alternatives. What we like to do at Verlinvest is find really boring categories. Find categories where there's very low innovation that have lost all meaning for the consumer become very price orientated, very value orientated and promotional orientated. And what who gives a crap have done really well is actually create consumer engagement within a category that no one ever thinks about. No one wants to talk about. And that creates quite exciting growth opportunities, particularly where there's uh, an ethical angle. And this is a fantastic brand. It's donating 50% of profits to building toilets uh, in the developing world. So it's, uh, it's, a really nice example of a business that's reinforcing its growth trajectory because the bigger it gets, the more good it does.
0: Yeah, okay, and that's incredibly important. I always speak about changing consumer behavior and the impact that a brand can have on a category depends on how much change they can make in their target consumer's behavior. And I use who gives a crap as an example of that because how many families do you know when you go into their bathroom, they've got a basket with who gives a crap toilet papers in that basket. You're smiling and it's true. So many people, if I ever use that in a workshop, people will put up their hands and say, yeah, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Nobody really put a branded toilet paper on display in a basket before. But by putting who gives a crap in the corner of their bathroom, they're saying, hey, we're a who gives a crap kind of family. That's who we are. And that behaviour didn't exist in toilet paper before that consumer behaviour didn't exist. And I think that's, a measure of changing a category that we should look at more as an industry rather than just are the category numbers changing? But it's what are the lead indicators? The lead indicators of the KPIs are, are we seeing consumers behave significantly differently, radically differently around this brand? And is that going to catch on and create a wave in the category?
1: I think that's right. What, what you're pointing towards is what are we trying to identify when we look for brands? We'll get on to what the indicators of success are, And that that you're alluding to. But fundamentally, it's really simple. Is is this uh, a brand that is changing consumer behavior for the better, number one? And is it solving a real problem? Is it solving a real problem at scale? So we take a very broad category view. So if you look at Oatly, for example, Oatly is delivering significantly less carbon emissions for people who who were previously drinking dairy. If you look at Tony's, for example, they are aiming to resolve uh, child labour for all chocolate producers, but within the co- within the cocoa industry. If you look at who gives a crap, they are providing a deforestation-free solution um, within within the toilet paper industry. So fundamentally, we're starting with problems. What problems are these brands solving? And once you do that, you get into a self-reinforcing cycle where you can actually make these problems. Um, make people aware of these problems. Most people, when they're walking around the supermarket, don't think, oh, you know, what's going on upstream within this within this category? That's just not the way consumers think. So it actually opens up a really interesting self-reinforcing cycle where we have brands like a Tony's, like an Only, like a Who Gives a Crap, that start shining a light on consumer, on problems that the consumer was perhaps less aware of, whilst also providing a solution. So we're giving consumers more transparency and more choice to actually solve problems in the way that they purchase. And that leads to many of the things that you say, like category growth and uh, particularly contribution to category growth is one of the key measures that we look at. So
0: contribution to category growth, for people listening, explain what you mean by that, because this will be new to
1: some listeners. So what what that means is is many categories are growing through a mixture of price and volume. And what we look at quite heavily is to what extent are the brands that we are backing driving that growth within that category. So what share of that overall incremental uh, dollar growth is driven by the brand that we're that we're backing? And fundamentally, Fiona, it comes to recruiting new consumers. We're looking at our brands recruiting new consumers into the category niches that they're playing.
0: Okay. Rather than just trading up the categories Trading up the consumers who are already in that category. But that's a bit difficult in toilet paper because everybody buys toilet paper.
1: Well yeah, toilet paper is quite a unique, a unique solution because household penetration is like 99.9%. It always begs the question what the other point one percent is. A better
0: example would probably be oat milk. And I'm sure there's a very significant percentage of households that now buy oat milk. Talk to us about your journey, the life cycle of a partner of a brand that you end up investing in. At what point do they get on your radar? At what point do you make that connection with them? How does the kind of the funding relationship, the investment relationship happen? Who have they had investing in them before? What stage of their investment life cycle are they at? Because I'm thinking about the people listening to this and they're probably thinking, oh, you know, is this a source of funds for me? Is this an investment partner for me?
1: We're quite flexible in, in, in how we invest. So we have a ventures fund as well that allows us to do small, smaller checks. Typically where we would get involved as a Verlinvest would be anywhere from an equity check of 10 million euros up to 150 million euros.
0: So huge, you know, in my world, that is huge. <laughs>
1: we're, we're looking at quite late, latest, well, later stage brands and startups, that, that's for sure. But if I look, we're quite flexible. And if, if I say what we're really looking for is brands that are winning within a niche. Brands that have very high advocacy within a, uh, within a small consumer group and that we believe have the potential to expand into, into the mainstream, but also to expand internationally uh, as well. But that starts with really getting the basics right. So we're often looking for dominance within a, small, within a small consumer group.
0: So talk to us about the Ventures Fund then. What kind of checks do you guys write at that level? Even better, what kind of size brands are they in terms of their revenue at the point that you start engaging with them?
1: So these are often digitally enabled brands that are doing anything from sort of two, three, four million euros of, of revenue up to up to ten. And we can invest anything as low as point five million euros to, to five million euros. Okay. And before
0: they get to that stage, obviously they will most likely have had some funding to help them on their way. Seed investment, angels, does that make things more difficult for you? Because one of the things that I often hear from my founders and my community is, you know, I have to be careful who I take on now because when I get to the stage where I'm looking for more investment, we have to be careful about who we already have on board, basically. Is that a thing or not?
1: Um. To some extent, but I think we like partnering people, Fiona. I think we act as a financial institution, as a financial investor. We're in service of entrepreneurs and we're in service of the opportunity. So having the right people around the table is critically important. So we look for situations where everyone is aligned on building for the long term and building a global brand. But outside of that, personally, just like to keep things simple. I would rather an entrepreneur were focused on, on growth, than they were on managing stakeholder relationships. So uh, as long as everyone is aligned around the table, I think we're completely open minded.
0: Okay, great. Once you have invested in these brands, right? Or whatever stage it is, how do you help them find success? I mean, is it just a question of the brands and the founders themselves going out there, making these decisions that drive the success and you are providing the money? Or is there more of a strategic advisory role involved in this?
1: I think it has to be the latter, Fiona. Ultimately, good businesses, good entrepreneurs are going to have access to money from lots of different, uh, lots of different sources. What we try to bring is a degree of sector expertise and a good degree of functional expertise that can support them as a real thought partner in how to achieve success, like some of our brands have already uh, have already been through, and how to avoid making mistakes. So that's why we only do one thing, which is investing in disruptive growth brands. Uh, and that's why we continue to do the same thing over and over again, because we need to have that ability to support brands. So Fiona, you're going to ask me, you could say, okay, what do you actually do?
0: Yeah. <laughs> For anyone listening, I just asked him that off camera. What exactly do you guys do? So that's why Ben's coming back to me on this. Come on, Ben, tell us.
1: No, because ultimately look, it's the entrepreneurs that are in the driving seat and our our job is to is to support them. But money is only one part of that. Typically, we support on a number of different areas. So one of those is really refining the brand strategy. Is how are you going to recruit new consumers? Where are you going to put your marketing dollars behind to push your message and grow faster?
0: How does VerlInvest know how to do that?
1: Well, we're, we're a multidisciplinary team. So there's people who come from my background, which is more of an investing background. But we have a lot of marketeers and we have a lot of consultants in the team. So we are very, very focused on speaking to consumers before we invest even before we invest, to say, okay, what is the consumer telling us about what they like, what they don't like? And therefore, how do we refine the message? But there's also a degree of experience here as well. Ultimately, I do love consumer research. I do love listening to what consumers are telling. But most successful brands do not simply just reflect back on people what they tell them they want here. They challenge consumers. They take them into new directions. They make them aware of things they weren't aware of before. And you're not going to learn that through consumer research. So having a mindset of test and learn and having the confidence to be bold in the way that we refine brand strategy, I think, is one of the things that we uh, that, that we are, are very proud of because that's how you change consumer behavior, which is fundamentally what we're all here to do.
0: And I think actually having a partner like that would certainly give me the confidence that it is okay to test and learn and I don't have to get it right all the time first go, because I would have imagined, not having heard what you've just said there, that a big financial partner like that would want me to get it right all the time first go. So that's quite a comforting thought.
1: Well, if you get it right first time, you're probably not trying hard enough. I wish everyone would get everything right first time. Look, don't we all, but you have to push the boundaries. And I think, what we've learned, particularly within the more vocal brand strategies that we've, we've worked through, is entrepreneurs are really putting themselves out there emotionally as well. You have to. And therefore, they're, they're very often becoming the target of people that don't agree with them.
0: And there's been quite a few examples of that recently, hasn't there, with some of the brands that you have invested in. There's always going to be naysayers or people who want to pick holes in what you're doing or some of the brands you're investing are doing.
1: Of course, and I think that is part of the value of having an investor that's done this before is actually I think our job is to be supportive to entrepreneurs just to stay the course There's always going to be people that that, as you say disagree with you or or say you're not doing the right thing, but fundamentally, you've got to believe that particularly with mission led brands that you're pursuing a goal ultimately a goal that is bigger than you but it's tough it is really really tough for for, for some entrepreneurs and if I think of the you know, if I look at Tony's and Oli, both of which have have had challenges in the press, part of our value is to say, look, are we doing the right thing here? If we're doing the right thing, we don't necessarily need to appease or make everyone agree about that. We just need to pursue what we think is right for, for the world and for building a, a global brand that's doing good.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just difficult. It's that age old chestnut, isn't it? When there's huge amounts of money involved, there will always be people who are sceptical. And that's going to be, I suppose, a battle that any investment banking firm is going to be up against, no matter what.
1: Look, I think you know it's it's one of the it's one of the problems of a success. People are always going to going to call you out, uh, but it's an important regulator within the system. It really makes you think: are we doing the right thing? And but it's also okay as a brand to be bold and to disagree with people and say, actually, you have got this wrong. We have got this right. And I think it's a. It, uh, you know, part of our job is to encourage entrepreneurs to, to make the bold decision.
0: If you're the smart founder of a scaling grocery brand and you're inspired by what you learn on Brand Growth Heroes, why not check out our online business accelerator for founders who want to take their growth to the next level? The Growth Strategy Programme is a six week online learning course, which offers a suite of bespoke lessons, tools, one-to-one coaching, group workshops, and access to a growing network of support from smart founders of grocery brands just like you. You can find out more by going to fionafitzconsulting.com and then clicking online courses. Then just press register your interest today. Thanks again to Strong Roots, simple, real food. So what advice would we give entrepreneurs then who are hoping to one day be at the stage where they will be able to work with a partner like you? What kind of mindset advice? We've said that, you know, try and dominate a niche, Make sure that you're showing that you're changing consumers' behavior, that you've got great repeat purchase, that you're growing your consumer base, so you're increasing your penetration. What kind of mindset advice would you give them?
1: So you've said test and learn. I think what we like to see is very good cultures within within teams. And that I don't want this to sound too high level or nebulous, but it, it's that is hugely important. The ability to recruit high quality people and galvanize them around a particular problem that you've identified is a huge signifier of success. Ultimately, brands are not, you know, are not just nice logos. There's people that stand behind them with opinions and the ability to get those people, uh, to, to, uh, to attract high quality people is a massive signifier of success. So that's number one, the ability to build, uh, to build teams is, uh, is hugely important to us. I think number two, is the ability to prioritize and th- synthesize. It's not lost on us that both big brands and small brands always have a million things to do. There's Nothing's ever perfect, right? There's always a million things that you want to do, but really being able to focus on doing one or two things very, very well is a massive signifier of success. Not getting lost in the noise is a great sign of leadership and ultimately a brand that we believe can uh, can scale.
0: It's the number one thing we focus on in the growth strategy program actually is where are you going to win? Where are you going to play? And how are you going to win?
1: Is that right? Okay, that's, that's, that's fascinating because it's you just need to win at one thing. The rest of it can be good enough. And I think that's often people don't expect us as investors to say that.
0: Yeah, I mean, look at Tony's, look at Oatly. Another big learning I've had recently, I think, and I've probably learned this on and off throughout my entire career, which is now coming up to 25 years in Food & Bev. So I was thinking about Oatly recently. I was thinking about just how many SKUs Oatly have on shelf, right? If you show up and you're just two SKUs, you're always just going to be two SKUs. But if you show up and you actually have a point of view on a category, and in that category, you offer choice to all of the people who might want to Benefit from the solution you're providing. So that might be oat milk instead of dairy. You want to offer a solution to those who have skimmed milk, those who have semi skimmed milk, those who have chocolate milk, those who have full fat milk, those who have small ones, those who have big ones. And I'm sure ready to drink coffee drink must be somewhere in the NPD pipeline. Uh, You're smiling at me. But like, you know, that is the next step, you know, it really is. And, And maybe even some milkshakes kids version i imagine if i was on the outley team there's going to be something on the npd wall that is a kids version of the brand that has been parked but keeps coming into all of the brainstormings over and over again because it's about creating a big presence in a category isn't it
1: i think that's right but it's about creating a big presence at the right time and i think we we often see younger brands viewing innovation or or skew proliferation as a path to growth. And I think it it is to to some extent, but if we look, if we come back to your Oatly example, if we look at what was really the big unlock for Oatly, it wasn't actually skew proliferation by any means as a way of recruitment. It was really focusing. And so this comes back to doing one thing right. So we still do this to this day, the same strategy, the same route to market of recruiting new consumers. And that is through baristas. So we were one of the first brands to have an on-trade team, which is quite unusual outside of outside of alcohol, really embedding themselves within that barista community to find a solution for dairy free within coffee shops. And the idea being that we could help partner these baristas in an indulgence moment to drive what we call paid trial. And what that's important is people actually paying to try your product. It's amazing, yeah. It's a great way of framing it. So if, if we can do that one thing really well, if we can win within the coffee channel early within a market uh, development, we can then build volume later on through all of the things that you're mentioning through grocery channel expansion, through SKU proliferation, through the usual FMCG disciplines of beginning to sub-segment your occasions and your groups, all the rest of it. But that can come later. But first, we just need to get people recruited into the into the category, into the product, into our world. And then we can take them on the journey. But really getting that first point of entry has been critical in every single market we've launched in to recruiting people into the category.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? We had minor figures on the show about 10 episodes ago, and they've certainly had a really successful path doing that as well. So is it as easy for brands to access funds in the current climate as it was? Obviously, I think we all know the answer to that one, but I want to hear your views on that. And what should brands who are looking for funding, what should they be focusing on given the current economic circumstances?
1: Well, I think it's no it's no secret that the economy is, is heading in a, a direction that is less good than it was before. And it has been for the past 10 years. I mean, since the financial crisis, we've had a, a fantastic run of a lot of money entering the system through quantitative easing and through low interest rates. Uh, and the period of massive globalization, people have been encouraged to build bridges internationally. And those two elements are, are reversing, which is making the funding environment for smaller businesses much harder. So interest rates are going up. Oil prices are high. And what that means is that there's less capital being put into growth. That's 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 for sure. So it is getting harder. It is getting much harder to raise to raise funds but there's still a lot of money around there's still a lot of money for the right propositions so the question is is if you are a small brand how do you access that and we've talked a lot about uh, about the, cons- the the commercial or the consumer orientated signifiers of what we would look for in a brand but the the sh- the shift in focus towards bottom line towards profitability has been significant in the past year wow even in just one year Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a mixture of financial reasons. So as we've mentioned, interest rates going up, the cost of capital becoming much higher, uh, but also operational reasons. And all of our big and small brands are now facing a number of different challenges that they weren't facing a year ago, which partially have come through COVID uh, and partially have come through the geopolitical situation, particularly around Ukraine. Um, And these are all supply chain related. Not all, but mostly supply chain related, um, because the world is is going through a period of what I would view as deglobalization, where it's becoming much harder to source products in China and ship them around the world. It's becoming much harder to uh, source products in the U.S. and ship them to Europe. So there's a period of localization of supply chains that, that's going on, and this is building resilience. Actually, this is building resilience in a in a much tougher time. But for smaller brands. I think the lesson is 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 one of simplicity. So i I see I see three big changes for smaller brands that have happened in the past year. The first of those is that we've talked about, which is a path to profitability and the focus on profitability. So it's we're no longer in a period of growth at all costs. There needs to be a degree of control.
0: So what does that mean concretely for brands? Are we talking about, you know, Valuing a brand used to be X times revenue and it didn't matter what they were doing on their bottom line. Is that the kind of space that we're in now that we're talking about?
1: Yes. I mean, the revenue multiple has something that's been grown and uh, over the past 10 years and is now subsiding. People are much more focused on what is the long term profitability potential.
0: Okay, so concretely for founders, they need to think it's not just revenue growth at any cost. I need to also be making sure that I've got a path to profitability more quickly than before. So I saw a deck yesterday and the path to profitability after five years, they broke even. Is five years too long? Do they need to be looking at three? Does it matter? Does it depend on the sector?
1: Look, some some investors would have a different view to me. Some investors would say, I want to see a path in, in two years i I'm personally not looking for a path. I'm looking for a degree of control. So what that means is I'm very focused on gross margin. If you are then if you have a high enough gross margin, that you are then using additional funds within your P and l to invest in into marketing, that to me is a good situation to be in because you, that's effectively using a variable cost that you can pull back. I would not personally, advocate slowing down too much on on growth where you have a market opportunity to uh, to attack just to achieve profitability within 2 years so in
0: that particular instance just as a random example you'd be looking at that P&L across the 5 years and saying okay they're not breaking even till year 5 they're not starting to show profitability to year 5 but if I look at years 2 3 and 4 I can see that actually the reason why is because they've made a choice to inject a significant capital into marketing spend to grow that market and I'm okay with that I
1: think that's a good choice. Correct correct. So it's about for me it's about structural profitability. You'll hear a lot of people talk about structural profitability and that and that's what that means. Can this business be profitable today?
0: Co- if you stripped that. stuff out. Correct. Okay. That's really interesting. Structural profitability. That's a brilliant one. New one for me. We we're on number two. That wasn't your number
1: two, wasn't it? So focus on profitability was certainly one area that's changed. The other area that's changed is uh, supply chain resilience. And I, I want to be candid that you know, both big and small companies we see are all suffering from Massive volatility within supply chains, not only costs going up through inflation, but also just more operational challenges, shipping, getting the right products into into people's hands at the right times. That's changed a lot because of COVID disruption.
0: I think the amount of time that it's taking people, the amount of man hours that it's taking people to sort that stuff out that used to take far less time is really a metric that needs to be brought into the discussion as well, because that's massive cost for businesses. Um, The time that it's taking to sort out, finding ingredients that aren't available before, finding ingredients that are cheaper so that they can afford to claw back some of their gross margin, getting a shipping container that's stuck in Sweden through, or that has been sent back. It's just ridiculous the amount of hours that it's taking people.
1: It's a massive burden. It's a massive burden on businesses and, and, Smaller businesses, just by virtue of having less resources, ultimately bear bear more bear more impact of, of that cost. So, I think one of the things I would look for as a result of that dynamic that you mentioned is shorter and simpler supply chains. So resilience, and and what I mean is, if it's if it's cheaper today to source something from very far away, I think I would only take that decision whilst acknowledging the risks that come with that. So things that are locally sourced, uh, things that have much more simple production methods, I think will do much better in this environment where there's still a lot of volatility around shipping, around ingredient costs. That for me is one illustration of strength of of a small business.
0: And as we move into recession, which I think everybody is in agreement now that it's not just a question of inflation, but it's a question of recession hitting. Would you be in agreement with that?
1: I believe that will happen, yeah. I don't think we've seen the worst of of where the economy is going to go.
0: That's really going to stand the brands that have refined their supply chain or maybe localised them or simplified them. That's going to help, isn't it, massively?
1: I think that's right. And what we've got to expect happen is that there's going to be rationalisation within supermarkets as well. Supermarkets are also looking for simplicity, and therefore, we'd expect uh, a contraction of, of 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 skews within within categories. Much more category management going on than has been going on during this sort of challenger brand proliferation era.
0: It's That's a bit right. like the classic industry life cycle. If anyone ever studied that, and for their GCSEs or their A levels, or even in university, you know we're at shakeout. There's been massive growth in FMCG categories and innovation and new brands. And right at the top of that curve, and all of a sudden we're going down the other side and there's going to be a shakeout. There's going to be a kind of a systemic explosion where there's a new system. And what that looks like is yet to reveal itself. Certainly, there'll be an element of well-being in there. I know that Tesco, Ireland at the moment are looking at a new well-being aisle. And I know that lots of the UK retailers are doing something similar and uh, not just one that is outside of the free from aisle that is totally different. And whether that ends up being a bay in the traditional category or a totally different aisle, a vegan aisle, is there going to be a vegan bay in each of the ready meal aisles or is there going to be just a total vegan aisle? It's going to show itself and different retailers will take different stances on that and some will win and some
1: won't. Uh, but I, th- I think that's absolutely right, and you know w- where we've seen the most success is actually building mainstream propositions. So not being pigeonholed to uh, to a thematic specific aisle that demands lower footfall than a than a mainstream aisle. So I would always want to be placed alongside mainstream equivalents, particularly if you're building better for you brands. But fundamentally, because of this shakeout that we expect to happen, you need to be very clear with retailers and with your customers what is your point of differentiation or right to be on that shelf. So having clarity around that is going to be, uh, as well as an important for growth, actually important for defensibility and keeping your place on, on shelf. What are you contributing towards the category as a whole?
0: I think that's key. And one of the things we're all working on at the moment with my cohorts on the Growth Strategy Programme and the alumni group is this, is how do you make sure that you continue to be a must-have rather than a nice-to-have? So as people's, what I'm calling their inflation friction, right? So do you understand your consumer's inflation friction? And what I mean by that is that how they made decisions around what they were going to spend their money on before versus how they're making decisions now is really changing, right? And I'll just take my next door neighbour as an example, okay? They're a, a two-parent family. They have got double income, just normal, not massive. But they've decided for this winter, each of the kids is allowed to pick one song for the shower, and they have to be in and out of the shower by the time that song is finished. And that's how they're going to manage their gas bills this year. And I think that's absolutely bloody brilliant. I wish I had the foresight or the management skills to think about that, but I'm certainly going to adopt it because our gas bill is absolutely ridiculous already, let alone the increase on the 5th of September that we're going to get here in the Isle of Man. I don't know what date yours is this happening in the UK. But anyway, the point being, there is a new decisions that are going to be made, for example, instead of going down to the shop and spending 30 quid, people will say, I'm not going to go over the 25 quid mark, or I'm not going to go over the 20 quid mark. And you have to ask yourself as a founder, where do I sit? Do I still fit within that 30 pounds? Or how do I make sure I fit within the 25 pounds? And the only way to do that is to make sure that you're framing yourself as a must have instead of a nice to have. And one of the ways you can do that, I think, is by reframing the occasion or the need state that you're pitching your product at. So, for example, if before you were just a pizza, you might be now an alternative to a Friday night delivery, right? So, you're changing the frame of reference. That's not necessarily an easy thing to do and you need to think it through, but it's going to allow you to recession proof or inflation proof your brand and keep in that must have to a certain extent. It's not foolproof, but at least it's helping you think it through and reduce some of that risk.
1: I'm totally aligned with that that thinking. I think we're I feel very strongly that premium shouldn't become a dirty word within FMCG in a recessionary environment. But the job of brands is how do you justify that premium towards the consumer? How do you focus on value versus price? It's okay to be to be a a premium priced product, but I think you need to justify that, which is what you're saying, and deliver value for the for the consumer.
0: And I think the difference in what I'm saying now is that we've always looked to justify our premium, but what we haven't ever done as founders or what we haven't been asked explicitly to do as founders is to think about this new decision heuristics or decision-making mechanism that our shoppers will make in light of the tightness of money that they're projecting for their own household for the winter.
1: I think that's exactly right. I think the shift of in-home versus out-of-home spend going back and forth between COVID and various lockdowns has been a really, really interesting dynamic. And uh, the most resilient businesses we've seen have had had a degree of exposure in both channels and have therefore been relatively well hedged between the two. I think what we're going to see in the long-term is probably the boom in out-of-home and eating and drinking on the streets that we're seeing over this summer. I think we need to believe that that will subside over time and people will return to, to to cheaper alternatives within grocery. And that's a big opportunity for grocery focused brands.
0: Yeah. And also probably an opportunity for out of home focused brands who can do potentially something in grocery that they hadn't thought of before. And there are brands that have done that really well. Look at Itsu, for example, and even Little Moons, who, you know, originally started out in food service as a supplier to food service. So it is possible. Listen, Ben, I'm really aware of time. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing all of your experience and insight into this sector i know that it's one that confuses lots of people really do appreciate it and we wish you all the very best with all of your future investments and those that you are focusing on at the moment
1: thank you very much Fiona.
0: thanks again to strong roots simple real food